All right, hi everyone. Uh, Connor Carrick here, I would say, current member of the New Jersey Devils uh, as a defenseman, but um, our season's over. And uh, you know we'll see contractually what comes up next year. Um, but that's neither here nor there for today. Our guest is Elisa Haggerty. Elisa, I'm going to read this right off her, her my phone here. I asked, uh, I got a cheat sheet. Is a conscious leadership coach and host of the School of Unlearning podcast, uh, which you may be seeing me on at some point. Um, Elisa has been a coach for over 18 years, from college basketball to nutrition, to more recently helping leaders bring more consciousness. And this one's important and play into their personal and work lives. Her work is influenced by a philosophy and belief that life happens for you, which has been a through line for Elisa her entire life. And I can say this uh, comfortably, even with Elisa sitting right in front of me, is I think that's an easy line to try on. Um, Elisa walks the walk in a way that uh, our friendship is very special to me, and we'll get into that, to, into that today. Believing life happens for you begs the question, how can I learn and grow from whatever is happening she has sought to find and create meaning from every chapter of her life and empowers her clients and teams to do the same from her first heartbreak, first job loss, divorce, and enduring the grief that comes with slowly losing her dad to a rare form of dementia. Elisa's rich life experience and humble curiosity is what allows others to connect with her and ultimately themselves in a deeper way. She finds joy in making her friends homemade chocolate and can be most found hiking or spending time in nature and has two adorable cats. This is true. You can find them on Instagram, Josie. And Lou. Woo. Where do we go with that? It's fantastic. PhD in life, like we were just talking about. Yeah, I'm getting a PhD in life, and um, every day the curriculum unfolds, and the there's no grade. There's no, like, pass-fail. It's just, like, existing. It's like an experiential course, and that's kind of how I've sort of approached the last 15-plus uh, years. So That's something that I... I feel like I was, I, had, I was very in touch with earlier in my life where I was so dream focused, right? As a kid, right? And I get it, like almost inherently by nature. That's how kids operate. You know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a firefighter. But there was such a conviction in my voice from a young age that, you know, hockey was what I wanted to do and it was hell or high water and I was going to make it happen. And I really did feel that I had this life is happening, you know, for me, by me sort of position, even as a nine, 10, 12 year old, you know, I was going to bend the reality of the universe around me. Um, and then you get older and you play against some better players and, you know, life can uh, throw some things where, you know, to oversimplify, you can get bitter or, or get better. And admittedly, there were times, uh, particularly early in my career where I just got bitter. Yeah. And, I honestly want to handle, hand this over to you because a lot of our podcast guests are athletes, uh, coaches, uh, parents to young athletes. Uh, we didn't even mention the morning, like you've gone through the athlete death as a division one basketball player that, you know, every athlete knows is coming for him and, and kind of dreads to some extent. Um, how, how are you grateful for all that? Not even necessarily grateful, but how do you feel that life is happening for you given all that you've experienced? That's a really good question. I think it, I think it is something innate that you have from a very young age. I don't think anyone said those words to me. I don't think anyone said those words to you, 
right? You just had the sense of like, I'm meant to be a hockey player and you were going to work to, to make it happen. And you did, and you are, I, I think that it was just innate. I remember very being very young and I would like climb trees in New Jersey and escape. Uh, I have, I'm the youngest of seven kids. So there's a lot of energy <laughs> and a lot of personality. <laughs> you, compete, you have to I had four remind old, mom who you are. Totally. I had four older brothers and they're wonderful human beings, but I, you know, I was young while they were adolescents and I was just like, look, I'll play sports with y'all. But aside from that, I'm in the trees eating snacks. Cause it was a lot of sibling fighting. So I just remember thinking like I had this very, meta experience as a young kid where I just remember thinking like, I'm only on this planet once in this body. So like, I know I want to play at the time I wanted to play in the NBA. I didn't realize that there was a WNBA hadn't started yet. And I just remember thinking like, I want to make the most of this body. I want to make the most of this skill. Cause I would go out in the driveway, right. As a young kid, six, seven, eight years old and play my brothers who were 14, 15 and we would dribble and they would play me one-on-one -on -one and we would shoot. We had this game where we would shoot a hundred free throws I would shoot 10, you would shoot 10, we'd rotate and we would keep score on a piece of paper and see how many we made. The goal was always to get over 90%. And generally we did, but I just had this like work ethic and drive mm -hmm. to like, I wanted to be one of the boys. I wanted to be one of my brothers. And, and so for that, like, I just had this sense of like, I have to make the best use I can of this body and this mind. Um, and I think that when I hit what I would call heartbreak, you mentioned bitterness, the, the athlete bitterness, when you get cut or you don't get the scholarship offer you want or the team trades you, um, I would call it heartbreak. It is. It was my first heartbreak. Um, my first love was basketball. And I remember thinking at a very young age, like this is going to be what I'm going to be doing for a very long time. I thought I'd play in the NBA. It turns out I did not play for the New York Knicks, but I just remember thinking in college, like this heartbreak is so palpable. I cried myself to sleep the year that I wasn't named captain I was devastated as a junior and senior when I got over-recruited and better players who were stronger came in to take my time. I remember thinking this has to be for me because this is so crushing. Like life, God, whoever you believe in would not have this happen to me if they knew the love I have for the game. So I need to find a way to use it. And I just used it. And so I didn't become a great college basketball player. I was, I'm not in any record books, but I did end up using all that heart, heartache and channeling it towards being a better student and then eventually using that work ethic to pave the way for whatever was next. So I guess my answer is it was innate. And then I found a way to use that heartbreak for survival. There were two words that I picked out of there. One was innate and one was eventually because it's that, it's that period of time that sometimes in my own career and in my life, I haven't necessarily awarded myself the, the grace of, and similarly, like when I was younger, there was no choice. Like hockey, I played other sports, but hockey was it. It was it. It was the one where uh, the highs felt higher, the lows felt lower. I played baseball, but that was, that, was fun. that was just something to do because there wasn't a lot of hockey being played at the time. Eventually, you know, you, you, I ended up, you know, a lot of times the, the critical times I'm talking about is really early in my career where you're, you're just so shaped. I remember I uh, played the U.S. development team. That was a huge goal of mine. You know, 17, 18 years old, there's a team of best uh, 20 players moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan, and play together as a team. And like that, the ice time was not very good for me there. And I used to play this game at home where I would, uh, I would look up players that had played at the U.S. development team and look up like their point totals when they played there. Mm-hmm. And I just knew, uh, 
I'm never going to play in the NHL. Like I'm nowhere, I'm nowhere near on pace for these guys. You don't, you don't all, you don't be an average junior player and right. show up in the National Hockey League one day. And then another one was, you know, when I was in, uh, you know, Toronto, for example, I was having, I asked Lexi one particular time. You have a lot of conversations, husband and wife, and and even when you're dating, as boyfriend and girlfriend, and she. I asked her, you know, what do you love most about me? One, you know, one time, mm. and uh, we'd already gone on over that she loved me. So that w- that was an assumption we Good. could work well, off. Happy of. that we, wasn't had, the first we had question. that in. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I waited at least till after advertisers were over. No, um, and she said it was your optimism. Mm. You know, I I really appreciated your self belief in the positivity with which you walk through the world. Mm-hmm. And there was kind of like a pause that like that was missing at the time. Like the right. optimism wasn't in, in the room at the time. Mm. And I kind of found myself, I think like you, I was, I was just a more emotional kid. I was more sensitive. Mm-hmm. I used to think all the time about uh, whether it was God or outer space or, or how finite this life was. I would, you know, sadly like practice people I loved like eulogies so that I could always like Mm. say the nicest thing if I ever had to, or it would Mm. help me appreciate while they were still here kind of thing. Mm. And for a long time, I would beat myself up that I wasn't, you coined this, you introduced this term to me, positive Pam. Mm. I I wasn't feeling more positive Mm -hmm. about particularly, you know, strife at the rank, Mm -hmm. but it's to come back to that word. Eventually it's like innately, I didn't know it at the time that that was totally for me, mm. but if, I know that because of the emotional sensitivity that I'm prone to, eventually I'd get there. And that's where I, I feel like I'm kind of hitting a little bit of my stride in, in that realm. Mm-hmm. You know, I know there's, um, and I think this piggybacks a little bit into your podcast where you're talking about the unlearning podcast. Like I would say, I, I wouldn't say I'm unlearning yet. I wouldn't say I'm even past that. I think the age gap between us helps you be further down that path of self-development. I think I'm still in the stage where it's like, oh, I'm actually comfortable with my own skin. Mm-hmm. I actually have, am owning uh, a lot of things that are innate to me and, and strengths that I do have. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was with that keyword eventually. Like it, it, I used to beat myself up that it didn't happen faster. You mean, so to clarify, like to, to feel better about whatever trauma had happened, you, you weren't going to be, you weren't positive right away, right? It was yeah, eventually I wanted, took to, you time. I wanted to rebox it. Like, like I, I, I know, wanted a yeah. five-step system. This is, sure. you know, uh, like a sports psychologist say, right? Like, sure. oh, you make a mistake on the bench, see a race replace. And it's like, right. sometimes you try that. I'm on step three and it's like, yeah. it's still there, Yeah, you know? So it's like, yeah, repeated drama patterns don't go away unless we feel the feeling to completion. So let's say your heartbreak from your first stat sheet where you looked at and you're like, oh, I'm not going to play in the NHL. Like, you know, that is uh, probably a fear. And then I would say um, uh, sort of anticipatory grief, right? So you are anticipating not being what your dream had always been, right? Which is to play in Mm -hmm. the NHL. So it's not the space for positivity, I would say. It's not the space for joy and celebration. I think that we can bypass that. People can bypass that and like grin and bear it and work even harder. But then what I would say would happen is that you'd be trauma motivated. You know, you wouldn't be motivated out of the joy for the game. You'd be motivated out of, I have to prove people wrong to get external validation. And so because I can't really, you know, be who I want to be yet, I'm just going to, I'm going to be positive Pam, you know, and you, you weren't able to access that. But I would say Connor, that that's a gift 
you, you weren't supposed to be positive when you saw those things. Those were warning signals to you to be scared and to be potentially, again, experiencing anticipatory grief. Like, feel that feeling. That has led to your genius in creating this podcast and being the person that you are. I, that's the really beautiful thing is, you know, we can't bypass. And, but I think, you know, probably what you experienced early on was like, everyone's like, you know, be more positive. If anyone's ever listening, if you have a bad day, someone says like, be more positive, just get over it. And that's very dismissive language. Like, especially athletes, we have to feel feelings. What does that mean? Help, help, help uh, unpack the language around what that looks like, what that feels like, and, and yeah. more importantly, how you do it. Yeah. So when I say feel feelings um, to completion, it just means it's a principle in conscious leadership that I help teach. And it just means that we can't, we can't operate from a place of positivity. We can't operate from a place of trust and learning and growth unless we've felt the feelings to completion. Because if we don't feel the feelings to completion, the drama continues, whether it be blaming the coach, blaming the coach, you'll find a player goes to every single team and everywhere they go, they're blaming the coach. Well, they haven't taken self-responsibility. They haven't felt their feelings. They haven't remained curious about how they can grow. And so to feel feelings, it doesn't mean to think the feelings. So our whole lives, we've been told, you know, anger, men can have it. Women know sadness. It's not sexy. Um, you know, anxiety, geez, calm down. We have been like from an evolutionary don't perspective, overthink it. we have been told yeah. to just basically shut up, grin and bear it our whole lives. So we don't have a history or a textbook on how to feel feelings to completion. So when I teach it, it means I actually ask people in this now very moment in your body and in your head, your, your full body, you know, what are you feeling? What bodily sensations are you feeling? And they might say, I'm feeling tingling sensations, tightness in the chest, the jaws really tight, hands are sweating, you know, and, and we might say, okay, if you were to name that, those bodily sensations, what would you name them? And they might say anxiety and, and anger. And then I would say, well, you know, if you're feeling safe, do you want to express these emotions? Do you want to give them a sound and a movement and even verbalize them? And so that process is a very somatic process. It's feeling the feelings versus thinking the feelings. So in talk therapy, which is wonderful, people talk about the feelings all day long. And then they, they're living up here. And then their whole body is disassociated. So for athletes and for parents or anybody, it's like the, the, the safer we can become one with our full body, not just our thinking mind, uh, the more we can actually end the repeated drama patterns. We can stop blaming the coach and we can start saying like, ooh, these really cool data points are showing up in the body. How do I play with them? How do I work with them? And when we do that, they found in neuroscience that emotions only last up to 90 seconds from a physiological like reaction. They dissipate just the physical reactions, not the thought patterns. Mm -hmm. So you get ang ang um, anxious or angry. You feel it for 30 seconds, 60 seconds. That's max. And then if it continues for minutes and minutes and minutes, it's because we have created a narrative that is fueling the emotion. Like this shouldn't be happening to me. This is terrible. What an awful day. And that narrative keeps the feeling going. Well, I, I think that was what it was fear in the, in, in, the initial sort of self-discovery stage of wanting to go down this route of improving emotional literacy was I, you know, I looked around whether it was family members or friends and th th this is not a judgment or, or members of the hockey community. And I could see it. I'd be like, okay, this, this emotion mm -hmm. has now turned into a mood and even a, a personality where I'm mm -hmm. like, I think this, this guy's then, been in. And then an identity. Yes. A whole identity. Thank you for. 
just adding to that. Yeah, yeah, so. nailing it. And um, I just, I didn't want an, an identity that I didn't consciously choose in five years, 10 years, 15 years. And I think, we, here, full disclosure, so Lisa and I have done uh, multiple sessions of this conscious leadership training. And one of the ones that I found most profound, I want to tie two topics together. One was I was telling a story to Elisa about, you know, sort of this image I had of myself based on the prospect I was coming up in pro hockey. I thought my career would be here Mm -hmm. and we're just short of expectations. Right. And the word we landed on was, you know, grief Mm. and to give, um, you know, the, the verbal cue, for example, which I found particularly soothing, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and as a, new father, you recognize just how much self-soothing goes on from, you know, such a young age. Mm-hmm. I, I'd gotten done telling the story and the, like the sound I'd made was like, Oh, mm. and it totally reset mm. how I was feeling about it in that moment and totally mm-hmm. took it off of my plate. And I think that that, I don't know, the, the emotional literacy side, it's something in sport, we're so role model driven, right? Mm-hmm. Like I want my jump shot to look like this player. I want to, you know, take a one timer like Alex right, Ovechkin. Right. And it's not, there's not the attention paid on hockey players and, and members of the game would still call it uh, the mental side of the game. And it's like, I'm not even positive. It's quite that. Oh yeah. It's different. Mental is cognitive and thinking. I think that probably what we're going through with emotional literacy and like giving it a platform and giving it a place in the world of human life, but also professional sports or parenting is, is that it's a, it's a full body experience and that's not a mental skill. So I would say like emotional literacy is just, is having like emotional fitness and having dexterity. Like people used to think IQ was the marker of genius, the marker of who you'd want on your team. But we want, we want people with dexterity, which means I can allow myself to feel angry about a missed play. I can process it and then I can come back and I can actually make a really great play made out of, uh, you know, curiosity and even joy, you know, maybe with someone's scores. And so having dexterity is kind of like the bag. That's the bag. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, people yeah, are like, IQ, yeah. I, don't give, I don't care about your IQ. Can you rethink and challenge not only norms and thoughts, but can you rethink and work with your emotions on a minute by minute micro level? And I guess that's like a path to like enlightenment in some way, but that's not where I'm trying to go. But like, that's, I imagine if you kept doing that, like minute over minute in your whole life, you get to a place of, um, where you have a PhD in life, you have a PhD in life and you, you can, you know, you have confidence. I think at the end of the day, that's one of the things, that's why I've gone into this work even 18, 19 years ago was I wanted to have confidence in my capacity to handle whatever happens in my life. Trust. Trust. And that I had the tools inside of me to handle a divorce, um, losing a job, getting a job, starting a company, closing a company. I mean, that, that is a lot of grief. There's a lot of beginnings and endings. And I, I thought I had a lot of the tools to work with that. Um, and I did, but then, you know, you just keep building more and more tools. So to me, emotional literacy is like, so that I can have confidence so that no matter whatever happens tomorrow, I can feel the emotion, I can process it, and then I can take conscious action. Versus being in reactivity and being like, fuck this. Texting people and calling someone and gossiping. Like, sure, I could do that. I've done that in my life for sure. But it doesn't make me feel good. 
it just perpetuates the drama pattern. So, you know, that, that's just the space I'm playing in and I'm finding it to be really relevant in business and in corporations and, and athletes too. And in, in moms, I work with a lot of parents cause they're like, my husband won't fix the, you know, the soap in the bathroom. And I'm like, is it about the soap? Is it like, what else is going on? You know, when you start to see emotions that are not expressed. So. Well, and I, I mean, everything is so holistic, right? Like every part of your life bleeds into every other. It's, it's very difficult. People discuss, uh, like they're, they're good at compartmentalizing as if that's like a badge of honor. Mm. Um, right, right. When meanwhile, it's like, why don't we, you know, play around with our ability to work with these stories and, and use them in a different way. Like I even thought we'll lean on basketball for a moment for, um, in the last dance, like Michael Jordan used it like an assassin. Like it, mm. I don't know. I'm not positive. He used it in every other area in his life, but mm. extraordinary basketball. You would hear the stories, this guy. And I took that personally, you know? Yeah. So yeah. It, it goes to show just how powerful when we take place in, uh, being an authority figure in, in terms of, what are the stories we're telling ourselves mm. and how can we make them work for us or at least even just consciously be aware of them? Mm-hmm. What, what stories do I want to tell myself? What stories mm-hmm. am I even hearing? And mm-hmm. I think that's probably a better place to start. Yeah, that's really huge. There's something that I teach a lot. I know we talked about this called fact and story. And so fact is what a video camera can record. And right now, hey, there's two people on a screen. That's all we know. And their lips are moving, moving, and there's air and words coming out of their mouth. Those are just facts. Yeah. It's like un- unarguable. Unarguable. Thank you. The stories we could make up about this is endless. You know, um, two people um, who hate their day job and want to create X, Y, Z, or two people who. At least the things I'm rude because I left my phone on the table to start yeah, the podcast. Yeah, I, I, I think Connor's rude. I think I think Connor's rude because he didn't give me a bigger glass. I yeah, think Connor's true. rude because you know, like I could make yeah, up a million stories. Yeah. And so once you start to understand the principles of, and this is from the Course of Miracles, which is one of the more like sort of um, well-read spiritual texts, which is we give meaning to everything we see. And that's our brain's main job is to give meaning to everything we see. So it's like, stories are great to your point, like have them, but just check them all the time (laughs) and just question them and, and try them on in reverse and see if you feel any different, you know? What's a story you've tried on? Cause 'cause I think that's a really interesting narrative um, or, or, or concept. It's something that from um, the conscious leadership group, I've really tried to implement. And I think it's a really fun one because I am somebody uh, who spends a lot of time building reason and logic around mm-hmm. my stories. And all of a sudden I've got this really well dug in position and I haven't actually explored, you know, the opposite. A lot of it will unravel <laughs> when yeah. I, you know, flip it on its head and go, how could this be working for me? Where, mm-hmm. you know, from what angle have I not considered what I'm thinking right now? Yeah. I, I think, you know, I live in Brooklyn, New York mm-hmm. and I, Love it because there's like probably 30 people who I know and could easily have dinner with within a mile radius. So like there is a a physical sense of community, but because of COVID and all of that, we haven't all gotten to hang out as much. And so over this last year, I've constantly said, I shouldn't be in Brooklyn. I should just move upstate. I should move to the West coast. I should get a little house and just be in nature. And I am constantly feeling like I have this narrative that I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be where I am. 
And that creates a lot of friction because yeah. then I think, oh gosh, I got to move. I got to pack. Where do I go? I don't want to live alone in the woods. What do I do? And so why, just, why continue to invest in this community when yeah. I, I want out of it anyway? Yeah. Everything. And so it can go for days. <laughs> and so it can really go. And that's a part of the brain, right? You could teach the methods, but you got to work with them. And so I can try on the other opposite is say like, you know, um, I know that one day I want to live in a new city with more trees. And that's, that's a feeling that's unarguable and a thought that is unarguable for me. Um, but I can also say that for right now, so many things are serving me about Brooklyn. I ride my bike everywhere. There's a place on 8th that has amazing gluten-free pizza. I'm 45 minutes away from my parents. Uh, my sister lives in Brooklyn. Uh, yeah, and I have all these people I play basketball with every week still. Um, we're not pro players, we're adult recreational players, but we play. And so I can come up with a long list of reasons that help me understand that there are two ways to see my current location, physical living location. Um, so I kind of, honestly, I think about that all the time, especially now at 37, I'm like, where do I want to be for the next yeah. decade? Like, do I want to be in Portland? Sure. Like, and, and I can still move to Portland, but I have to kind of process these stories that I create. And when I resist, I think this is something important when I resist the reality the physical reality that I live in Brooklyn. That's my mailing address. That's unarguable. And I resist that. And I create a story that says I should be somewhere else. Whenever I use the word should, I'm suffering. Me and life are fighting. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. I should make more money fighting. I should have a partner fighting, you know? And so every time I use the word should, I have to catch myself and be like, okay, like, should I? And then also like, what's the feeling here? I'm obviously feeling lonely. Can yeah. I just feel that? And that sometimes as far as I get. There's another shed some light on how serious is suffering. Cause I would consider myself someone who particularly early in my career, I think I had an Instagram post about it where uh, I'd scored my first NHL goal, for example. And I was in a big dog locker room. I was not expected uh, to make the club. And these are stories I'm telling myself anyway, sure. you know, but yeah. at the time I did not feel like I was supposed to make the club. Uh, a lot of big contract guys, a lot of guys that uh, in the Washington Capitals that I'd looked up to uh, for a long time. And I score this goal and I get like the shaving cream pie in the, in the face. Cool, cool. And I like, do not even acknowledge it. I don't smile. Hmm. I don't laugh. I literally continue to talk as if no one had done anything. And I remember that's just one sign that was unarguable and on video. There were a million other where, not a million, but quite a few, um, where I was Captain Serious, where I was. You know, I wanted to uh, earn respect through some form of what I thought mm. was intimidation or intensity. And it was exhausting. Like, yeah. That's not how I operate. I'm not mm -hmm. that heavy all the time. Like I, I really uh, benefit from a sense of lightness. And, and yeah. frankly, so does everybody else around me. Like yeah. we all feed off it, you know. And that's it kinda... why Hoagie has like half your account. It's just Hoagie. <laughs> yes, because yeah. it, we yeah. have to lighten it. That's why I have cats have all over to. my feet. It's like, you know. Um, so I'm curious when you got the pie in the face, congrats on your goal, by the way. Thank you. I'm sure. That was a I moment. I still watch it every morning when I, when yeah. I, you know, <laughs> good. I mean, you know, whatever you got to do. Um, so you were feeling like you couldn't express joy and celebration because yes. it was just business got to move on. I expected to be here. Like what was the narrative for you? Unflappable, too cool for school, like totally stoic. I'm, I'm not going to showing anything in any way would be, you know, tipping my hand at which. You know, and frankly, I was, I was terrified of players that I'd look up to, you know, to, to make fun of me mm. or to tell me I was doing something wrong, mm -hmm. um, which for the most part, like I was a young guy, they don't give a shit. They just want to win and, and right. they're going to help me actually help them do that, which is also in the best interest of 
my career. So it's like, yeah, what's the opposite of this? Like I actually could be really leaning into that. Right. Um, but I didn't at the time. Hmm. So yeah, it sounds like, you know, we were kind of talking about this before is that, you know, your desire to fit in was far greater than like the fear of like being out of the league. Cause in that moment in the locker room, you just wanted to fit in, which meant like to be serious, to like be the guy who was the guy that night, the player of the game, whatever it may be. So I think this goes back to like our evolutionary like needs, which is to be a part of a tribe and to fit in. So somewhere along the line in your life, it sounds like, and also mine too, big time, seriousness um, meant that you were a value add, um, that you weren't joking around, that you were like going to get shit done, which is a phrase that I hate, but it's a phrase. Mm. And that you were not going to be kicked out of the tribe because you were adding value, right? And so we've always, we've long associated pleasure, joy, um, as frivolous things, things that are the antithesis to productivity. So in order for Connor to be productive and maintain his team and his contract and get the W, you know, he had to play a certain role. So you put on a persona, right? To like, to fit in. Mm -hmm. And that's normal. That's what we all do all the time. But at some point, the repression of the joy that you felt or the repression of the anxiety you felt through sports, it catches up to us and it can even inhibit uh, our play long-term or our personal life, you know, how we go home and how we talk to people. So it's like, on one hand, like tremendous amount of compassion because you, you were looking at these stats 10 years prior, like dreaming of that day. And then you couldn't, Enjoy you know, allow yourself to express it because, you know, of these narrative that maybe you created or the world gave you too, that you believed. Now you're bang on. Which, and we were talking about a little bit with, um, Lexi Hoagie's not with us because we sent him home um, for the summer. We were beating him. And, uh, you did get to meet Charlie though today. And he right. was still all zen when we were feeding him after. I think your energy, babies are very receptive to that. So I'll take it. I appreciate uh, the meditative state you loaned our son in. Um, <laughs> but when you think of what is, I, I, I think similarly, we are joking about it before we started a podcast was, I used to think, Connor, are you healthy? Mm. Would you consider yourself a healthy person? I would have described my diet. Mm -hmm. Said absolutely. But let's point at this. Yeah. Look at I had 17 blueberries today and 32 kernels of you know white rice and this yeah. much chicken and whatever yeah. and, and greens and what is health? Because I think that you are somebody that's been extremely influential uh, in my life. I know Lexi's in terms of like being a modern beacon of light of, of redefining what health is. Mm -hmm. And by redefining, I mean, actually mentioning what it probably has always been. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this concept of what is health. Cause I started like first half of my life was just sports oriented. Second half was like nutrition, which meant like nutrition and a little bit of mindfulness and like sleep hacks were like the way that I worked with people for 10 years. And it was my pathway to, to, build relationships and help them. And it was amazing. And I always was adamant then that food is secondary to your relationship with it. Sleep is secondary to your relationship with it. And so I think for a lot of times I, I was sort of the through line of my life has, has been unlearning. It has been a belief system that's greater than the object. But, and so for those 10 years, it was food. Like that was how I got my foot in the door to work with people. Like I'll help you with your diet. And they're like, cool. And we did. And we built a relationship and behaviors changed and health improved, but there was always something deeper, which is, I think what I'm getting at with the school of unlearning podcast is that 
you know, uh, I'm unlearning what health is all the time. I am. I'm 37. When I was 32, I thought health was something different. Um, I'm unlearning, like, I'm just, gonna, just saying these like words because it's, I feel like it's my podcast question, yeah. but like, yeah. I feel like I'm unlearning what my body needs to look like. Yeah. You know, my body doesn't look exactly the way it was five years ago or, tw- or 10 years ago. Um, so I think to me, having health is kind of what we alluded to before. It's having the privilege to have the skills to have dexterity. Can you be agile year over year, decade over decade in assessing where your physical, spiritual and like cognitive body is? And it's going to be different. Um, For me, like it's create creativity is more important than food. But for 10 years, it was food, you know, and then now it's community over um, business or outcomes or money. It's just people like that's what I, I want to spend time with people I care about. So like, that's how I'm assessing my health these days is those two mediums. But I would say broadly, it's having the ability to be agile and to assess and have dexterity around like what matters to me to even ask the question, what matters to me in my physical health is kind of rare. And, um, is something that I would say that means you have a good pulse on life. You have a good pulse on your health. If you can redefine health year over year. I love that. I love that. What does the sort of the cycle of let's transition to the school of unlearning podcast. Cause I think they're, I'm really excited to talk to you about it. Cause we haven't yet. Uh, a lot of everything we've talked about thus far is I don't want to say a, a regurgitation, but I have to bring the audience up to speed on our relationship. What is the cycle of learning and then unlearning? Like what, what have you learned in your life that you are unlearning about being an athlete? What did mm-hmm. have you learned about, dealing, uh, you know, with your father, who you, you know, love so much and, and, you know, has done so much for you and, and for your family uh, and is, you know, course with dementia that you're on unlearn- and, and maybe that one's still ongoing. Right. Yeah. And, and I don't know, it's something that I always thought to myself, you know, smart people or, or, you know, people who are open-minded are really able to learn from themselves their own mistakes that's an easy one but even their successes and their joys and their failures and all that yeah but you know if you're really crafty and you're able to you know get outside of yourself and actually pay attention to the world if you can and be present with it and and learn from other people and and internalize that in your own life like you can have you can expedite not that there, you really want to hack or cheat or phd yeah. to life but you can yeah. start to um try things on that maybe you haven't wrestled with yet. And that's something that I think I do in my life just because I've been lucky to be a witness to yours. Mm, Thank you. I would say when I look at the anatomy and the journey of learning and unlearning, it's all of life. It's what it is, right? It's like I said, I say to a few people, I'm starting this podcast and like, well, I'm unlearning everything every day. I'm like, yeah, fair. (laughs) Every day I'm unlearning. I think what happens at a very young age is you're five or you're six or you're seven or something. And you have an influential moment with someone influential in your life, maybe a coach or a teacher. And they say, Connor, the most important thing is academics. That's it. And if you don't master this or do well in school, you just won't have an easy life. So from a very young age, you have what's called an indoctrination of a belief that was given to you and from an influential person. So you believed it and you probably wanted to please them and live up to that. And so you spent your whole life, maybe, for example, being an A plus student, whatever it may be. And so 
in that world of pursuing that A plus world, maybe being a valedictorian is what someone dreams of when they're very young. You develop habits. You develop people that have strong relationships like tutors, mentors. Um, You have milestones. So that learning at five, that academics is the most important thing, created a whole ecosystem of behaviors, milestones, mentors, people, community. And so that's why people run through walls to achieve things at very young age, very young age is because they don't want to lose the promise of appeasing their teacher or their parent, you know, like they don't want to lose their friends. They don't want to lose their identity that they've been building. Like they keep hitting Dean's list and they keep hitting honor roll. Why would they want to then question our academics? The most important thing. Could there be more? There'd be a, a, a serious sunk cost at that point. Yeah. Right. So they're like, they're all in. And they don't even stop to think. They don't even stop to question. And it could have been sports, right? Like hockey is the most important thing. You get my analogy here. But so it's like, honestly, it's a beautiful sort of timeline. If we, if we were to map our core learnings and the people that were associated, the communities they brought, the opportunities, beliefs, we would, we would have a beautiful timeline of life. But at some point, a trauma happens or a joy. So let's say you believe that academics are the most important thing to success. You were told that. You believed it. You drank the Kool-Aid or the kombucha and you, <laughs> like you had that. a great yeah. life. You went to college, you got straight A's and then you got your first job and those academic skills weren't translating to college, to, to workplace. Maybe you got fired. And so now someone's sitting there like, I was such a great student. How did it not work out here? And they start to unlearn what success means, the tools needed to be successful. And they start to question, what else have I missed? And they start to build more skills and more tools and more communities to kind of help make them, you know, more confident in this world. So to me, unlearning, and that, that's an example of a trauma, right? Like you lose a job, it could be a trauma. It also could be a joy. Maybe someone like, I don't know, falls in love with someone in the same sex. And they're like, I never, I never thought that was an option. And there's a, there's a joyful love and connection, but then that can lead to unlearning of what relationship norms are and who should be together and who shouldn't be in religion. And then that joy does make you question the community, the people who raised you, your faith maybe. And so there's all kinds of ways that a trauma and a joy can kind of burst your bubble and have you rethink life. And I think it's a privilege to unlearn because a lot of people don't get a chance to. And I think it's messy and you might have to unlearn many, many times because <laughs> it's been so ingrained. So, you know, I think that that's sort of an example of how I think about the timeline and anatomy of it. But how you said a lot of people don't get to unlearn. And I, and I agree with that statement. It, it sounds very true. And then the, the other side of the coin is, you know, at like 9.30 tonight after we put Charlie down, I'll think to myself, be like, what if I'm the guy that's not unlearning? <laughs> You're unlearning. And I'm trying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm trying. I think that yeah. even being familiar with the term is step yeah. one. But like what... What do you think prevents people from the proper introspection, the, the, uh, re- allowing you know, the conscious mind to calm down, to let the subconscious kind of come up with some of these thoughts and, and chew on them? Um, how can people, how can we, not to make it you know, super abstract, to make mm. it concrete, how can we seek that? Like, uh, I think you and I would both recognize a lot of our unlearning comes off the back of, what we'd consider at the time, brutal adversity. Yeah. Next step, maybe we'll remember if, if we're able to access 
how this is happening for us. And, and then all of a sudden you're able to kind of unlearn the structures that first made the event feel like something bad in the first place. Right. Um, what helps you get to a place of unlearning? What are some tools that you use or I don't think it comes down to a phrase or a mantra, but just what are signs in life, the things that come up? It's such people an, you meet. it's such an amazing question, Connor. I think, um, we can be unlearning and not even know it. Not consciously. Maybe we're engaging in drama patterns or picking fights with our partner. We're gossiping around a relationship. You know, we we're showing physical signs of behavior and words and emotions that are not aligned with like, you know, where we want this relationship with this person to be in our life. And so we're kind of unlearning. We're, we're fighting it, but we're like unlearning in the background because we're questioning how this relationship is making us feel and its value. And so it can be happening in the background, but then also what I would say to people is unlearning can take a long time because you're repatterning the brain. You're repatterning the most influential years of your life, childhood or teen years. Like that's where we got our imprints, our core learnings, our core memories from the movie inside out. (laughs) Um, But I would say, you know, look really closely at your physical body. Like I said before, we can't feel, we can't think our way out of feelings. We have to feel our way out of feelings. So I would say like, how do we know if we're not unlearning or we could unlearn? It's like, are you well? Like, are, are you depressed? Are you anxious? Are you experiencing trauma looping patterns? You know, these are all signs that an emotion hasn't been safe enough to go through the full cycle. Um, and that's why the habits continue. And I would just say like, you know, an overall sense of vitality, which is like, I wake up in the morning, I'm happy to exist. I'm happy to figure out what to do today. And I can't wait to give someone a hug. These are some like very important signs of basic vitality. Like if you don't have that, you know, it might be good to do like an inventory check. I like that. So like, you know, where am I? Do I feel aligned with my career? Physically, do I feel not like, can I think about it for 64 hours and make a case to stay in my job? But how do I feel my body about my relationships? Like do an inventory. How do I feel around my fitness habits? Like for me, going back to sports, I was always taught that fitness was like, run as fast as you can, lift as many weights as you can, do as many, take as many shots as you can. So I learned from a very young age that like that was excellence. I learned in cross country as a young kid, I would run. I ran through high school, um, cross country and track that you never stopped. Doesn't matter if you're dead, you keep running. (laughs) There was a principal rule. You do not stop. Break a leg, got to go to the bathroom. Doesn't matter. You're doesn't matter. I had cross country races where we were running for so fast for so long to, to keep our spots in the top 10 of this cross country meet that we would actually like pee our pants because we, we were, we were in such physical numbness that we had to disassociate from the body to the mind to complete a goal. And so that's how I was raised to think about fitness. And so now when someone at 37 is like, try some yoga, I'm like, fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) Like what? You want me to do yoga? And so I've actually had to unlearn to kind of get back to like the question of how do we know? And like, what, what are the signs? Your body, your body doesn't lie. You know, I, I was, I wasn't able to question things back then. And in some ways it served me. It got me a college scholarship and it gave me my life. But, you know, I'm unlearning how to be an athlete. Yeah. I'm unlearning how to listen to my body. If I feel physical pain, it's no longer cool <laughs> to run through it because no one's paying me to do it. And so that's kind of where I am is like, you know, what's my relationship to my body? And am I willing to feel a sensation and listen to it? You know, 
that's where I am with like movement and unlearning that. So. So I know you wrote, you, you brought up the uh, movie inside out. Remember yeah. the volcano scene? Did you see the short mm -hmm. films you see in theaters? I, I saw the full movie. There's a short film for so it. There's, yeah. So Lexi and I went and show, saw it in theaters and there's this little, I'll send it to you on YouTube. And cause I'm, it's only five minutes long. That's all it takes to make me cry. Perfect. And it, uh, it was pretty funny. We, Lexi and I went to go see the movie and on came this little, there's like a, I think it's like a Hawaiian little song and, and the volcanoes, it's like this love story. And yeah. Uh, anyway, it was, it was pivotal to Lexi and I's relationship. Like we even had volcanoes on like our napkins at our wedding. So I thought it was funny. You Interesting. You brought that up. And even similarly, like I, I remember points of fear in my career. I played an entire second and third period. I had just gotten traded to Dallas and uh, from Toronto and I was playing pretty well. And I was playing with a kid who was, you know, eventual NHL All-Star, this Miro Iskin, and he's a left shot. I'm a right shot. Didn't really have many righties. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, oh, man, like if, if we can prove, that, you know, how defense are oftentimes evaluated is as, a, is as a pair. Like if I can trust that pair of players, mm -hmm. they've got chemistry, we'll, leave, we'll set it and forget it. We'll put them on the ice and we'll, we'll let them play. Mm -hmm. I remember I took a shot off the ankle against Detroit and broke my leg and played the rest of the game. and convinced myself it was a bone bruise or yeah. whatever else it was, you know, x-ray missed it the first time, walked around on it for like, you know, 17 days before we, you know, ended up finally getting uh, surgery on it. And like, I look back and I think to myself, I'm like, on one hand, Hey, there's nothing wrong with like having a goal and, and you got to stand for something and, and, and brutally going after something. Mm -hmm. and, and I was doing that. On the other hand, I remember I was brutally afraid it was something bad. Mm. I'm like, I will do anything, including continuing to play on this leg rather than sit here and feel the pain of it. Yeah. Um, I remember we'd flown to Montreal and I was trying to, uh, right after the game in Detroit, leg was throbbing like all night. I was just throwing on a, I think it was a Laird Hamilton, I forget who it was with, podcast. And I was just like trying to fall asleep. Not that Laird was boring. It was a great podcast, but yeah. I, it was, you know, 3.30 a.m. and I had my leg elevated and it's just pain. It's amazing what as an athlete you'll do. Mm -hmm. So on the, on the other side of it, what are traits that maybe as an athlete you had acquired that you've unlearned them in terms of like the application of sport mm -hmm. that you have borrowed in other areas of your life that's been rewarding. Mm -hmm. And that's not the positive whitewash yeah. it, but no, know. that's, that's a, what I would call that is a learning that has remained. Yes. So from a very young age, and this is the cool thing about unlearning is that some of these learnings at our young age, they stay and year over year, decade after decade, they remain true mm. because you, you felt them, you experienced them, you embodied them, you believe them and they serve you. Um, I would say from a young age, you know, I probably had to do with like sports kind of gave me a resilience, a resiliency to bounce back from a turnover, a missed shot. I knew I was seconds away from making another play that could help. So yeah, I didn't process emotions too much in the moment, but later I would cry about the missed shots or the turnover and I'd get anxious. But in the game, in, in the game of like life, for example, I had to respond and I had mm. to figure out how to move back. So that's been really, that's translated a lot for me um, in, in a positive way. I've learned how to be resilient and like make sense of something that's not good. I would also say, because I was so in touch with like my physical body from like playing and climbing trees and 
playing sports as, at a young young age before it got super painful and, and insane, <laughs> <laughs> I would say it also gave me a curiosity of like what's possible with the human body. You know what could happen. You know I'm 37, but could I still run my fastest mile if I wanted to train for it? Like I'm 37, could I now be a yogi? And there's this sort of like limitless sense of like. Again, I'm privileged to have a working functional body and a mind that is aligned, but um, what else can I do? And it doesn't mean to accomplish grandiose things. It just means like, could I learn Tai Chi? Yeah, yeah. cool. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. could I become a master Connect Four player? Which by the way, I'm like pretty damn good. I wouldn't so. go near you on Connect Four. You're wicked smart. <laughs> I don't know I, why. I'm not fucking with you when it comes uh, to Connect that, Four. But we can, we can play each other one time and see. But uh, like, you know, I'm just, it's, it's like, it's carried over into like, what else can life and my body bring me. And I think that's kind of a cool thing that I'm proud of. And I know, you know, I was surrounded by, by my dad who played college basketball, my brothers who played my twin sister who played college basketball. And so movement and exploring the limits of the human body was just always what we did. And I'm blessed that I had that growing up because now I know at 15, 16, 70, I'm going to go back to movement. I may not be running triathlons, but I'll, I'll always go back to my body, which I think is good. And now luckily it's a healthier, more conscious relationship versus like a abusive one. Yeah, abusive or vanity. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I've been both. Yeah, me too. What's stick with that? What what are you to date in your life? And I'm I'm asking this because I'm I, I have this tendency to copycat you a bit. Um, and one of the things, and just in terms of my reflection, I don't necessarily spend enough. Maybe I do, maybe I don't. I don't. What's the term enough? But what are you most proud of? in your life to date? Like one thing or multiple things? I think to do one would be cruel. Yeah. Um, you know, this sounds really cheesy and it's not like a marketing campaign. I am most proud that chapter over chapter, experience after experience, I continue to find meaning and work with whatever is going on. And I did that from a very young age. Um, you know, not being a captain as a junior in college broke my heart. So I made the Dean's list in school for the first time. I used it. When I lost my first job as a teacher, I was cut because of budget reasons. And I was so heartbroken. I started a blog called the lucky one. And I was like, you know, this is crazy. I had this great job. Everyone loves me. It was stupid budget cuts. Governor Christie just took all the money away from schools in 2008 and I was like, well, I have to be the lucky one because this shit's like crazy. Like, sorry, I can curse, right? Yeah. Um, I, I just figured there has to be a divine reason that I lost my job. So I'm going to go f- make the meaning out of this. And so I think that's what I'm most proud of because, you know, the, an accolade, a scholarship, like tangibly, yeah, like super cool. Um, but I keep, I keep iterating upon like whatever happens. So. I love that. I love that. If you were to say behind all of it, mission-wise, like with your training with the Conscious Leadership Group, with the work that you do at Parsley Health, with all the time that you spend um, investing in yourself in terms of uh, continuing to acquire more and more tools, in terms of the time you take to check in on, you know, friends and family, you know, we are relatively new friends still, Yeah. you know, social media success story. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I know that I've always appreciated the, the checking ins, the, um, you know, thoughts, advice, uh, food yeah, you've sent our way, same. whatever. Um, what's behind, like, what would you say is behind all of it? What would be your mission for what's next? Um, I'm on learning how to 
not approach what's next with a desired outcome because I'm very outcome oriented. There's a mentor of mine at home who's <laughs> smiling ear to ear at yeah. that thought. I'm sure it's, but it's hard for me every day. I think like, what am I going to do, accomplish? What can I produce? How can I prove my value? This is just an ingrained sense of like me wanting to show up and make sense of this life on this planet. And that's cool. But if it causes me anxiety and stress and procrastination and like, again, anticipatory grief about the career I don't have yet, then I'm in for like a shit storm of misery. So where I am now is kind of like, okay, can I create a podcast that is truly just creative and relationship building and see where it goes? Yeah. It could go 10 episodes, a thousand. You know, I want it. The way in which I do it is what matters to me. If I start a new job or a new career, cool. Like it's just how, how am I doing it? Am I doing it from a place of like creativity and learning and growth? Or am I doing it from a place of threat and control and security? And so that's kind of where I bring in like the conscious leadership is like, it literally has become um, a bit of like a a compass for how I want to create some structure around yeah. something that it gives structure to all the meta stuff. Woo woo meta. meta. That's like, what we can. We can. I, I've read every single book on Buddhism possible since I was twenty two, and life got served to me, and I had to read the books to survive. And I've meditated. I've done ten days silent meditation retreats with ten hours of meditation a day, like crazy, little intense things, yeah. but. I'm, I, I want to continue to live a life that is just moment by moment engaged and, and having a sense of curiosity because I, not everything's outcome oriented. Like not everything has to be a metric or a business outcome or financial outcome for it to have value. Like if you ever watch the movie Soul, the new Pixar movie. Have I seen it? Oh my gosh. What's it? What's it? I, I, yes. Um, where he goes up into heaven. Yes, and soul. yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. That's, Fantastic. That's where I want. And I had this light bulb moment, Connor, where it hit me like in the world of health and everything I've done, which I am proud of because I helped a lot of people. Everything has been so that, so that. And I just, I get that and it's cool, but it was always done with a sense of graspiness, a sense of like scarcity and I must achieve and I must prove. Yeah, I'm, I'm not enough currently and I need to go through this process so I can be just a little bit more because that's what my boss, partner, whomever wants, yeah. yeah. The world wants Instagram, who knows? Like YouTube, I don't even know. It's just like, it's ingrained in us. So I'm just, I don't to answer your question. I'm just trying to create, to live with a sense of openness to whatever happens from it, happens from it. And I just, I get to kind of work with that. Does that make sense? Perfectly. I, I had a, um, a video session I had arranged with a, a hockey coach that I use. Uh, we'll remain, remain anonymous for now, but so we do this video and I played like 30 minutes or, or 25 minutes in the game. And so, you know, I, I thought we're going to watch the game together and we're going to come up with notes and, you know, a couple thoughts on that. So we had to like four seconds into the first clip, we end up talking about this play for 40, 50, yeah. 60, like an hour and a half. Wow. We never even watched the rest of the game. Yeah. And, you know, he's kind of going all over the place and uh, he, he's making some points, but, and he, and he keeps coming back to him, but it's, it's very, it's very webbed at this point by the end of it. And that's how I feel. So he texts me about an hour after the call. And uh, I was pissed because this was decently manipulative, but maybe it was the medicine I needed. Mm. And he goes, uh, Hey, what were some of the main points you took out of our call today? And I picked out like three. Mm-hmm. And he goes, how amazing would it have been? If just after that first clip, we'd come up with the three main points, imagine what we could have done with the rest of the hour and a half. Hmm. I'm like, I don't, I don't follow. And he's like, 
that's your brain during the game. Mm. He's like, and then there's no room. There's no energy. To be in For flow. everything else. Yeah, yeah. For flow, for everything else. Mm-hmm. And he's like, so, he's like, sure, you, you know a lot about, you know, particular plays, games, where your stick should be, your skates, this, that, the other thing. He's like, but now what? Right. And he goes, so I don't know. He's like, I, I tried to pretend like I was, I was Connor Carrick's subconscious for a day. Interesting. And, you know, while I wanted the hour and a half back to go talk about other plays, which we eventually did. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it was really an, an interesting, it, we, we took the position of do things the way that you would be proud of um, without the so that, without the like perfect preferred outcome, outcome yeah. in mind. Let Like show up and see what happens from there. Yeah. And uh, it's so, it's, it's very freeing mm-hmm. because, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time in my life extremely conscious about, you know, where exactly I'm throwing the dart. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know nothing about bow hunting or dart throwing or anything like that, but everything I've ever heard is like, the process is what matters. The experience is what matters. The jerk and, and the dart will throw itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's a, I, it's profound for me, profound place to, to leave it. But I, I think it's really interesting that you arrived at that point, because I would say that that is particularly as I'm going into the summer uh, season, great yeah. structure. Yeah. Summer, uh, much more chaos. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of open schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's easy to uh, accumulate too many big rocks, focus on the small rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, all of a sudden your, your container's completely overflown. Um, Remember we talked about once we talked about like uh, just playing to play. Like when's the last time you took the hockey I couldn't do it. puck and just had a game and, you know. And I think that speaks to it. It was during, uh, really, I can really remember, like, without a particular point, it was during COVID, I got the rollerblades out. And I was, like, in a cul-de-sac trying to yeah. you know, do the three, two, one shot that we all grew up doing. Yeah. And it was particularly difficult. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how to grade it was a success or not. And that's where I, I just because I am an adult and do have a kid and a family eventually to go home yeah, to, yeah. you know, I think play is very important. But I remember... um it was Jerry Seinfeld on a Tim Ferriss uh, podcast. He was talking about like how writing's brutal. Like there's no success or failure. How do you know when you're done? You're not done. You're never done. Mm-hmm. And he's like, so I would just set a timer and I would like quote like an athlete, get my work in. And I think that um, at least having that approach where you have some structure, some ends around the unstructure allows it to you to consistently do it. Yeah. Um. But the play one, like I, I've particularly been drawn to adults in my life who have been, quote unquote, you know, Western society successful, mm-hmm. but somehow, some way they've snuck play into their life. Mm-hmm. Like they've snuck fun. They smile every once in a while. Uh, they take some risk. They admit that this isn't for them. They, they quit something. Right. I think that they might be successful because of that. Yeah. Play might be more present than we give them credit. Um, we, you know, maybe we're all overthinking like what play looks like. It's not grandiose. It's imagination. It's, it's, it's wondering, it's being in awe. It's like, um, it's not taking things too seriously. And then that, that does lend itself. Like the science actually shows that lends itself to optimal creativity and optimal mental health and optimal collaboration. 
And so like, I, well, I thought it was like making sure I biohack some GPC at the too, right time. Me too. And, yeah. That's what I thought about with nutrition when I first got in. And I'm like, it should be this. Every meal should have this. And I should have 20 grams of protein and have one avocado a day. And like, boom, I'm golden. And you know, you're just, I, I don't know. I was so young, but, um, you know, when you were talking about this, the whole idea of play in sports, I thought about Dennis Robin a little bit. Now I know he has, uh, he's had a long, uh, stressful, mildly, tra- very traumatic life. But when you think about what he does on the court, which is like produce, 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 produce. I mean, the guy is a, a legend yep. in his craft and he, 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 he probably went to the extreme off the court of taking his life, not seriously at all. Like in terms of like, he put himself in the way of like drag shows and drugs. And he did a lot of that. I'm sure to escape a, a trauma that he's yep. been working with respectfully but he's someone I thought about when we think about play and sports and success. It's like sometimes he would skip practice and Michael Jordan would be like, no, Phil Jackson, let him go. He needs a day away from this strict regimented drill based life because he needs to like let it out. And then when he comes back on the court, we know that he's got us and he did. And I thought that was really interesting that Michael had Michael as if we're first name, best friends, Michael Jordan had the intuition to know that he actually just needed that time to be fun, to be playful, to be reckless, because that allowed him to channel his ability to show up in, in the workplace. So I don't know, I was thinking about that as you're telling me your story of this coach and the film. So, yeah. It is interesting. Copycat world that is pro sport. There haven't been mm-hmm. more Phil Jacksons, more people. And I guess, you, I guess you can't fake a Phil Jackson. You can't go on and say, I think that this is a persona I want to just try for the hell of it. it. You can't nope. fake it. <laughs> but it's just interesting that there haven't been more comparisons. Not that I'm aware of. Um, and pro sport, although I'm not the fan of pro sport that I once was considering I'm, I'm in it. You're not watching, you're not watching our it. games. Uh, Lisa, this was outstanding. Um, I really appreciate it. Not that it needed a grade. Uh, the whole point I think was just to do yeah. it and see what happens. I'm just, I'm happy that you've done this. You've created a community. Um, and I love the stories that you tell and the people you interview and um, I'm proud of you. Thank, Thank you. you for having me. Thank you. And good job. Thank you. Thank you. Killed we, it. We promised we were going to do one yes, high five. We did. So we did it. <laughs>